Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. If you pull any decent, reputable history book off your shelf right now, odds are that it's filled with quotes from letters, diaries, or account books that help the author tell her story and provide evidence for her interpretation of the past. Hopefully, you'll find footnotes or endnotes citing the original sources of those quotations, and whether you are on team footnote or endnote is a matter between you and God. It's almost always the case that the quotation you read in a book is just one snippet of a much longer document. Perhaps, for example, Catherine Green's letters to her husband Nathaniel offer the reader with insight into some aspect of the family business she was running while Nathaniel served in the Southern Theater of the War of Independence. But what about the rest of the document? What about the quiet moments when someone like Martha Washington asked after a family member, describes the state of their own health, or apologizes for a hurried scrawl, the result of the writer trying to catch the next post? And as valuable as collections like George Washington's papers are, how can we write more nuanced and complete histories of the American past by reading the letters of early American women? On today's show, we welcome Catherine Garrett, who is tackling that question by exploring the lives of early American women one letter at a time. Garrett is a research editor at the Washington Papers Project based at the University of Virginia, where she is also on the team at the Center for Digital Editing, which is publishing documentary editions of historical manuscript collections online. Garrett is also the host of the new podcast, Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant. On each episode, Garrett and her guests break down a letter written by an early American woman and put it in context to show what is often obscured by the so-called juicier quotes you might find in your favorite book. I was very fortunate to be a guest on her show recently. We had an absolute blast, and I'm delighted that Garrett could join us today to talk about her podcast, how her training as an early American women's historian, Monticello tour guide, and documentary editor informs her approach to it, and some of the exciting letters she's discussed so far. And as a special treat, stick around after the credits roll for a preview of Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant, featuring Garrett's conversation with our colleague Samantha Snyder about a letter from Elizabeth Willing Powell to George Washington. Now before we get started, just a quick hello to all our longtime listeners and our new subscribers. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey. And with that, let's read Letters by Early American Women with Catherine Garrett. Catherine, you're the host of a new podcast. I mean, you're your research editor at the Washington Papers and the Center for Digital Editing at the University of Virginia, but you're also the creator and host of a new podcast looking at women's letters from the 18th and 19th centuries. So could you give us a brief overview about it and especially you know, tell us the name? Sure. Uh, my podcast is called Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant, uh, which is a way that people would sign off on letters during this time period. And it's a women's history podcast. My goal in it is to feature the kinds of 18th and early 19th century women's letters that talk about interesting things like gossip, family news, health, uh, just sort of the day-to-day life things that are really interesting and historians love to find and read, but a lot of times don't often back up a larger historical argument, so they might not get cited in history books or research articles as often as you would think. So this podcast is a way to feature these letters on their own and really dig into them. As I can attest, I've, I've listened to a couple and that's really great episodes so far and, and really great and interesting letters that are really engaging and fill those spaces between. You might not often see them cited in books or things like that. What was your motivation for creating it? Can you sort of walk us through the process uh, by which you decided, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast. And then, you know, what was going on in your mind that you thought this would be a great idea? And it is. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually, I got the idea. I used to work um, in public history. I was a tour guide uh, mm-hmm. at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello for a while. 
And what a lot of times when you're interpreting somebody's house, the way you do at a historic house museum, you're looking at these sort of family letters because you want to find out how did they host dinner parties? Where, when did they go to bed? Things like that, these little tiny details. So I did a lot of research into these family letters and I just kept finding these really cute little nuggets that were really interesting. Like uh, one that stands out to me is I found a letter where Thomas Jefferson's daughter is writing to Jefferson about her toddler daughter, who's about two years old at that point and is learning mm -hmm. how to talk. And she writes, she says, Septimia can tell the difference between two things. She has two words, man and cat. So everything is either a man or a cat. So if it's a horse, it's a cat. If it's a chair, it's a cat, but a person is a man. And I thought that was really cute. And I kept trying to use it on tours, but there's, <laughs> it doesn't really work <laughs> as an anecdote. And you really don't have much time when you're giving this 45 minute, supposed to be 30 minute tour uh, to really dig into these little cute things that I was mm -hmm. enjoying finding. So I would save the letters. So I would find really cute ones and sort of save them and see if I could find a way to work them into things. But even when people are visiting Monticello, they want to hear about the Louisiana Purchase. They want to hear about like the bigger historical art and not necessarily these tiny little family details. After I was a tour guide, I got my master's degree in women's history and women's history emphasizes sort of history from the bottom up. It's not necessarily history of, you know, great women, interesting political women. It's women's history it's just people's daily lives and trying to find the value in that mm -hmm. uh, which really matched up with a lot of these cool letters I was finding and then after that working in documentary editing where I really got to dig into these individual letters working at the papers of Martha Washington I got more uh, confident with my ability to talk about these letters and I thought a podcast is the perfect way to feature them because they're interesting, engaging subject matter. They're usually not too long. A lot of times they were written to be read aloud by somebody's family member to the rest mm -hmm. of the family. And a podcast would give me a way to really feature these letters, dig into what makes them interesting without trying to back up a larger historical argument. Let's play with this notion of reading the letters aloud for a second. One of the features of your podcast is you have the guests do that and then you, yeah. you, you all break it down. But can you tell us more about this act of reading letters amongst family in the 18th and 19th century and why that would have been important to them? Sure. Most people, and I'm coming from the background of studying almost entirely American history. Uh, sure. And a lot of times just from sort of accidents of what I've ended up studying, it's sort of American history as relates to the founders. Mm -hmm. um, but so a lot of people wouldn't travel much further than 30 miles away from where they were born in their entire lives in this time period. So the people who are writing letters are people who are traveling, visiting family, visiting other places. Not everybody was able to afford to do that. A lot of times, particularly with women's letters, these are women of a certain class that were able to get an education to even be able to write. And so the function of writing a letter back home to family was letting people know you're okay, Getting the family news, mm -hmm. health issues were really important because these health issues could become serious so quickly. And if somebody's visiting another family member for a few months, you really don't know what's going on. And sometimes sort of as a journal, uh, you'll find family letters from somebody who's on a trip that is writing just the interesting things that they're seeing in the news back home. So they are writing this to be a public document. It's not necessarily just information to pass on to one other person, super secret. It is a news update, maybe like mm -hmm. a group email or something like that. Uh, so they would write these letters back home with the intention that someone would, they would be, the family would be sitting around the fire. Somebody would sit and read all of these interesting updates. And in some cases, people purposefully would try to write to make the letters funny for that reason, because they knew <laughs> that uh, the people reading them, they knew their audience and they knew what people were mm -hmm. going to be interested in. And uh, you see that quite a bit sometimes where I think one of 
uh, George Washington's granddaughter said she was going to apologize for writing so late, but she always found the apologies to be the most dull part of an otherwise dull letter. <laughs> <laughs> so she was going to get right into it. So I, I think it's it's nice to to feature the letter so you can see the sort of skill that went into writing mm -hmm. a letter like that. Well, and it's funny too, you, you capture those more human moments. Uh, you know, Sometimes it, it seems like when I'm reading through letters, you you don't expect to, to capture a sense of their humanity, uh, especially if you're reading certain people, but those little moments pop up and you're like, oh, yes, they had senses of humor too. Yes, yes. And uh, this is something particularly with letters of the founders, I think, is you get used to taking like one individual quote from a letter and then mm -hmm. that sometimes even is published in just like a book of quotes and it becomes this sort of standalone nugget of wisdom that's removed entirely from its context. And you don't realize that, you know, maybe George Washington wrote this really clever thing about some issue in this letter, but the rest of the letter he's complaining about is back hurting or something like that. And so by featuring the entirety of the letter, you get all of that information as it was originally intended to be mm -hmm. consumed. Um, and also uh, on sort of a darker note, the sort of casual way that people of this class who were slaveholders would write about enslaved people is sure. very easy to sort of tweak out or hide your, if you're only quoting other parts of a letter. A lot of times when people are writing about slavery, it is something like have somebody pack my bags up for me, just these really casual little mentions that you wouldn't cite in a, mm -hmm. a paper or an argument, but it just shows how slavery was just integral and in, in every part of life. So that comes through when you feature the entire letter that you don't get when you're just pulling out the juicy bits. And thinking about the entirety of the letter, is there a, a common structure that you see across letters from this period. Nowadays, of course, we have instant messaging applications. We have email where we can fire off random thoughts instantaneously. But in that period, as you said, these letters are traversing great distances from time to time, um, especially when we're looking at transatlantic correspondence. That's, that's certainly yes. to be true. So is there a common pattern you see to the ways in which these letters are formatted and structured? I think there should be. It's one of those things everybody learned to sort of follow a certain structure when they're writing a letter. Mm -hmm. It depends on how well people were able to keep up with that structure a lot of the times. So I think generally you start with obviously the greeting. Health is almost always the first thing that uh, in, that comes up in a woman's letter. How's family health? And I know that sounds mm -hmm. it sounds dull, but it really was like an essential part of why you were even communicating. And then I do think it's funny how often the first section is an apology for not responding to the letter sooner. <laughs> exactly. It's the uh, 18th century equivalent of the, like, pardon the lateness of my response to this email, but <laughs> almost always an apology for not writing sooner. And then if you are writing a sort of social correspondence, you mm -hmm. would go point by point through what the previous person wrote to you and try to respond to all of those points. That doesn't always happen, but that was sort of what I think you were supposed to do. And then you add whatever news, the main point of the letter that you're trying mm -hmm. to get across before the sort of very long formal, depending on the situation, closing of the letter. I particularly enjoy, though, when I find a letter that is when someone is traveling and they're not sure when they're going to have access to the post, because a lot of times people would write their draft letter. And if it's a formal letter, they'll write the draft letter and then just keep tweaking it, writing it over and over until they've got it perfectly the way that they want it. But if you're writing a letter back to your mother who just wants to know that you're alive and you're on a trip, <laughs> you'll see these uh, letters where they're, they're writing a new date every day. They try to keep up mm -hmm. with that. So you know what time between when somebody would write a letter, when they would receive it, it was essential to, to say what the date was that you were writing it. And at the very bottom, sometimes they'll say like, the postman is here. Sorry that this is poorly written. 
goodbye. <laughs> like, <laughs> and many of them say burn this, burn this scrawl at the end because they'd even want evidence that they wrote such a ridiculous letter. <laughs> yeah. So I, I always find those interesting because those are, they're a little messier and the grammar's not as good, but you mm-hmm. get definitely this little window in time of when somebody's writing this letter. Well, and I love too the moments where, as you say that, you know, they're responding point by point to a previous letter, but then you notice they deliberately don't respond to one thing. Yes. And that's, that probably wasn't an accident. <laughs> probably were just trying to say, I'm not even going to touch that one with a, <laughs> with a horse whip or something like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the state of women's letters in the 18th and 19th, in the founding period? You work at the Papers of George Washington Project, uh, but you're working on a separate spinoff project I want to talk about a little bit. But in general, a lot of our modern papers projects focus on the founding men. Um, yeah. you know, there are some exceptions. Uh, there's Dolly Madison papers, a few other papers projects that try to transcribe and annotate and, and publish women's letters, but uh, not uh, on the scale of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Madison, so on and so forth. And there's this idea of, of the Republic of Letters in the 18th century, where there's a, a profusion of correspondence amongst uh, men and women who are you know, exchanging ideas on a variety of topics. So what can you tell us about the Republic of Women's Letters in this period? Yeah, that's a great observation. There's a lot of research on the fact that a lot of women of a certain class uh, at this time period in America were getting access to an education that they'd never had before. So more Mm -hmm. and more women were literate, were able to write letters to keep up a correspondence. But in some cases, unless a woman went to like an actual school, it was mostly sort of a private tutor that was just teaching you the basics of how to read and write in order to um, make a point. So -hmm. this is something that comes across, particularly in Martha Washington's letters that I think is interesting. She doesn't write with the same sort of stilted language that that somebody that had a formal education sort of drilled mm. into them at this time period would. Some of the the way that people were writing in the, the late 1700s was extremely wordy, very sort of floral language. Martha just writes the way she speaks to the point and she spells things the way she spells them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> an example I enjoy is sometimes she'll write something of my own, but she spells own O-N-E instead of O-W-N. Interesting thing. So I think there is more female correspondence Mm -hmm. and women are writing to each other more frequently. They're not necessarily writing about big ideas and uh, the political situation because this is still an an era that's sort of barred to most women at this time. Mm -hmm. But they're writing about their lives, their families, their thoughts, their feelings, things that they're interested in. And they're still really valuable and they give you an insight into how life was actually lived at the time, into how people actually spoke uh, that some of these other letters don't necessarily give you. That was actually going to be something I was uh, I was going to ask you, actually. And as soon as you were talking about the way that Martha spells, you know, to the extent to which that indicates how they spoke or a particular mm-hmm. dialect or vernacular that they were employing. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's daughter. Sometimes you can... F- you can feel the Southern accent coming oh, yeah. out of the way they, they wrote something. Uh, but um, that's another advantage of reading mm-hmm. the letters out loud is sure. you sort of fall into the way that they were speaking. And Abigail Adams has a good quote about how she's not very good at punctuation because she just thinks everybody will know how she what she means. <laughs> she doesn't really use punctuation very well. So when you're trying to actually read the letter, you get into the sort of flow of the way that they were speaking talking mm-hmm. and thinking in the way that they were separating their uh, their thoughts, that even just in my work editing the documents, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have as solid an understanding of that until I started trying to read these out loud. Yeah, I think it's a great strategy. And uh, I, I have an example actually of my own where I was uh, reading a letter, or actually I was reading a letter about 
another person uh, who was uh, accused of uh, kidnapping or at least persuading indentured servants to leave the Isle of Lewis in Scotland and, and resettle in, in North America. And various historians have been, have have said that there were actually two people, a Daniel and a Donald, but this person's Gaelic name was Donald. And depending on the inflection, it could sound like Donald or Daniel, and depending on, you know, the accent. And, it, and that was the moment when I was reading it a lot. I'm like, oh, you know, this is probably the same person. This is probably what's going on, uh, at least I think. And, and it's <laughs> me trying to do a terrible Scottish accent in a variety of ways, trying to figure this out, actually paid off in a lot of, in a lot of respects. So not that yeah. I would ever, never do it, uh, never do it on the podcast, of course, but. <laughs> It's uh, working as as closely as I do with some of these letters. There are certain yeah. things now that I see, like obviously you learn about ye old and stuff like that. Oh yeah, these would have been pronounced the stuff, uh, uh, the way the way people contracted um, words. Sometimes you can see that being misprinted in other places, and you're like, oh no, I think that was a contraction. You just start picking up on a lot of useless knowledge, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, and as you were thinking about doing this podcast. Uh, and you're reading all these letters and thinking about the, st the structure of, of these letters as you do on a daily basis. Uh, how did you decide on the structure and format for your new show? I definitely wanted to have other people on the podcast that wasn't just me talking at you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just comes from I listen to a number of podcasts and I prefer <laughs> podcasts where there's more voices. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> you don't you don't like when they're like rage yelling at you. about something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like having a variety of voices in a podcast. So mm -hmm. I wanted to have guests. I wanted to bring in people from different points of my career. I've worked with a lot of different types of historians. So I mm -hmm. work with people who are going for more academic PhD, people who are going more into editing and people who are very much in the public history side. And so I thought it'd be interesting to have a variety of these guests on to talk about the letters with me. My initial thought was that I would just dive in and read the letter in full at the beginning and then mm -hmm. go into the context. But what I found almost immediately from that is you just don't get as much out of the letter if you don't have some basic idea of the time that the person mm -hmm. is writing, who's writing to who, and what's going on at this time period. So I always open the podcast with introduction of my guest, a um, little bit of background sometimes turns into a longer background of the context <laughs> of the letter uh, and then reading the letter in its entirety, which is something that I was stubborn about. Just about everybody that I pitched mm -hmm. the podcast to said that I should just tweak out the most interesting parts, but I'm going to keep those boring parts in there. Yeah. Uh, so read the entirety of the letter. And sometimes uh, and they'll read the letter to me. Sometimes it depends on who, who's bringing the, the letter to the table. But um, this is something I still haven't totally landed on. Sometimes when we're reading the letters, we'll respond in time. Like if some if there's a joke, we'll laugh to it. Or sometimes somebody would rather it be quiet. So I'm still figuring out the best way mm -hmm. to sort of play with that. And then afterwards, we go point by point a little bit of what's interesting about the letter. And I try to dig into, because the main point of my podcast is to talk about what's relatable about this letter, what it is that uh, is relevant to modern life and then mm -hmm. also what is so different because of course the past as much as there are these little relatable nuggets in there that humanize people it was a very different time and it can really tell you something about the culture of this time period sort of shifted and morphed into the way we live our lives today well and it makes sense to read the letter in its entirety because as you said earlier if you're just pulling out the juicy nuggets you're not really seeing the whole thing in context and there's a whole lot more going on there and then simply Oh, I, you know, hung out at the state house today or something like that. You know? Yes, exactly. And I that was sort of an insight that I got from my work in documentary editing, where mm -hmm. you have to identify every person named, even if it's just this little, oh, I saw Mr. So-and-so today. 
when I was working on my master's thesis, I would just completely ignore that sentence. But as a document editor, I'm like, okay, well, who's Mr. So-and-so? And then I find this incredible story about how mm -hmm. that guy was like a pirate or something. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a lot of really cool, rich stories when you dig into the little. And it was customary in that period uh, for men and women to sign off their letters, you know, some variation of humble, obedient servant. You know, I think a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that's just their form of sincerely or all my best or something like that. Is that the case? Or do you see that there's something much more behind that? It, it can be like, mm -hmm. it can be just something that somebody's writing all the way uh, out. It can be just, um, but also depending on who someone's writing to, which would change the type of signature that you're going to put. So mm -hmm. if somebody is writing your most obedient and humble servant, it's usually someone who maybe in a professional context is writing to somebody who sort of outranks them, something like that. Or mm -hmm. it can almost be a mock humility as well. Uh, the uh, Governor Dinwiddie would be writing, he'd be writing letters to George Washington where he's absolutely telling him off for something. And then he'll sign it, your most obedient <laughs> servant, which he is certainly not. He's the governor of Virginia at yeah. that point. So it, it depends on how it's used. Uh, I That's another thing I was stubborn about as having the title of my podcast be your most obedient and humble servant because it's so long. but. Mm -hmm. The point that I want to make with that is they almost never actually write all the words your most obedient and humble servant out. They will abbreviate it to absolute death. And then it's like Y-R-M-S-T-H-B-L-E-S-V-T. And that to me, when I see that is very relatable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, this is how you're supposed to sign a letter. Who has time to write this all the way out? And they just shorten it to death. Uh, so I thought that that was a way of showing this is a different time period, but it's also highly relatable. Um, and then another example I have of these lengthy sign-offs that I enjoy um, is uh, there's one letter from one of Thomas Jefferson's granddaughters to her fiance. Mm -hmm. and she's about to sign off the letter but it's been a long letter and she's a little bit cranky and she's like and with all the nonsense you usually write at the end of a letter virginia <laughs> <laughs> so that's not an exact quote that's a summary of it but uh, i just i thought that was great <laughs> <laughs> i've never seen anything like that <laughs> i really want to see that now that's hilarious <laughs> Yeah, because usually you, sometimes you'll get like an ampersand C or CA or something, you know, that just sort of like, yeah, you know what this is. But then, yes. but then they take the time and it's just like, you know what, I could write it, but I'm going to say this instead. That's yeah. even better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Speaking of these letters, can you tell us something about uh, the, the folks you've had on so far and some of the exciting material that uh, listeners can look forward to? Sure. Um, I well, when this podcast was just an idea that I was floating around, um, I would mention it to people that showed an interest in my work uh, mm -hmm. in women's letters. And I was actually doing research at the Washington Library, mm -hmm. uh, and we were being helped by the lovely Samantha Snyder. Oh, <laughs> uh, Sam, yeah. Yes, she, yes, she uh, uh, was the person that was sort of tasked with sitting in the room with us watching while we went through original manuscripts. <laughs> and me and Samantha started talking about how fun some of these letters are. And mm -hmm. I found out how interested she was in Elizabeth Willing Powell. And I floated this podcast idea past her. And she just was so excited about it that we actually set up a recording date. So that was the first episode that I recorded of the podcast because it had been this concept that I'd been playing with for a long time. But Samantha was like, no, you really need to like make mm -hmm. this an actual podcast. So she helped me and uh, we worked together and recorded that episode. And from that, I started actually 
trying to set this into action and, and make the actual podcast. Um, but so she, Samantha is a, a reference librarian at the Washington Library. She mm -hmm. is working on her research into Elizabeth Willing Powell, and she was able to find some really cool juicy letters that I didn't even know existed. I've been speaking with a lot of my fellow tour guides at Monticello mm -hmm. uh, as guests, because there's just um, something about being trained to speak to the public on historical subjects. I think that public historians have a really good way of getting to what is engaging about mm -hmm. a subject and being able to articulate it in a way that's really fun and engaging and, and interesting. And as much as I want my podcast to be educational, I also want it to be entertaining as well. So I, I, I never intended for it to be a very serious formal podcast. I wanted it to be something that sort of matched the the tone mm -hmm. of a lot of the letters of being conversational and fun. So I've been working with a lot of public historians to have conversations about these letters and tell me about ones that I hadn't thought about finding. And what mm -hmm. I'm hoping is as the podcast gets a broader audience, people who work closely with a lot of other letters will be able to contact me and introduce me to new ones. And I'll be able to sort of broaden my scope of the types of letters that I'm featuring. But it's fun depending on who I'm talking to, you get completely different reactions to a letter than I was even anticipating. It's really interesting because uh, it shows how uh, we bring different things to the table, right? And then we're interpreting letters differently. Some letters, you know, there's a good way to interpret and there's a sort of a common agreement on what someone's saying in a letter, but then you bring multiple perspectives to bear. And as you say, you know, you could have a completely different reaction from the person sitting across the table or yeah. across the computer at this point in our lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I, I, that's another reason why I definitely wanted to make sure it wasn't just my voice telling you what this letter said and yeah. make it more of a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was thinking you, you were saying, uh, you know, you didn't want it to be sort of a formal, uh, a formal show. And very quickly, if you were sort of just reading the letter and saying, well, see you later, folks. Well, that's all for today. <laughs> we're done. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's like three people that would love that podcast, but that's not what I want to make. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not going to do that here. <laughs> it, it sounds like actually you've already, you've already spoken to this, but um, I'll ask it in a more formal way. It's, you know, it's pretty clear that this is an extension uh, of your work as a women's historian and certainly uh, your work at the GW papers, but you're also a part of what's called the Center for Digital Editing at the University of Virginia. And that's center aims to make digital editions of published papers more accessible for the broader audience so that people can read some of the letters that you're talking about. Yes. Can you speak to how that particular kind of work is actually informed what you're hoping to do with this show? When I try to tell people that I work as a documentary editor, a lot of people assume that means I like edit film documentaries. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, people, I think a lot of sort of lay people who are interested in history but aren't professional historians mm -hmm. aren't really aware too much of the difference between maybe being a historical documentary editor versus a historian versus a public historian, all these little mm -hmm. things. But my work, which was when I was working for the papers in Martha Washington, which is finding documents, editing them, preparing them for publishing, and making these volumes of primary documents, historians are aware of which primary document editions have been published and mm -hmm. uh, how valuable those are. But I think most lay people who might be somebody that's just like touring a historic home aren't really familiar with uh, what these collections are. And I think the importance of digital editions and something like the Great Project of Founders Online, of mm -hmm. making up, taking all these letters, putting them online, putting them in a place where people don't have to know what this book is or where to find it at the academic library, or even how expensive some of these collections of primary documents can be, just making this history available to people and seeing where how we know what we know about history, just making that information public online and digitally is a mm -hmm. very valuable way to go for that. So the Center for Digital Editing, we are taking these 
editing projects, these original um, historical documents and trying to produce them in a way that people can actually use and find in uh, collections online. You mentioned the Martha Washington papers, and I know that those have been in, in process for a long time. Can you tell us something about uh, when the public might be able to read those uh, sets of papers? Uh, so I'm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the page proofs are in, and we don't know how long that's going to take. <laughs> exactly. I think it's going to be probably in the next year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll actually finally finally get published. But again, the one volume of Martha Washington's documents, it'll probably get bought by a lot of libraries, mm -hmm. um, but it won't necessarily, I mean, hopefully, I think people will want to buy this book and bring it home. But it's, people don't usually buy for their personal history collections, full volumes of people's letters. Um, but being able to put that online in a way that people can sort of mm -hmm. dig through and check out on their own, I think is a good way to make this work available. And are you able to tell us anything about what, what the Center for Digital Editing uh, has in the works uh, in, in regards to other papers projects at this moment? Sure. Uh, Center for Digital Editing, it's through the University of Virginia, through UVA mm -hmm. Library. Uh, projects come to us uh, who are interested in publishing online and maybe making a interesting website that they can use. Uh, one of the biggest CDE projects that I think was very successful was making George Washington's financial documents available online. Uh, mm -hmm. You go to George Washington's financial papers, and there's just a lot of really fascinating information that one reader wouldn't be able to read the entirety of George Washington's account books and get much meaning right. out of them. But to be able to search like corn and see how much corn he was selling or buying it and have the website return that information to you is incredibly valuable mm -hmm. and really useful. Uh, so another project that's similar to that that we're working on is the Thomas Jefferson Weather Records Project, uh, which is from the Jefferson Papers at Princeton. We've been working with them and putting together a website of Thomas Jefferson's weather observations because Thomas Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment period. He was very interested in meteorology. As I said a million times on tour at Monticello, uh, <laughs> Jefferson loved meteorology, but you don't really see it until you see his weather records of him writing down the temperature. Sometimes three times a day, sometimes four times a day, he would check the temperature and write it down in his weather observation books from 1776 to, I think, 1816. It's about a 30-year span that he's writing down wow. the temperature at least once a day, very frequently more than once a day. We were talking off camera before we started recording, and, he, and you were telling me about his uh, barometric pressure observations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, sorry. I, <laughs> uh yeah, Jefferson. He, <laughs> I don't blame you because it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> he had a number of different, you know, he'd have the cutting edge uh, thermometers. Uh, he had a barometric pressure reader um, and he wrote down the pressure readings to something like three or four decimal points, which is just impossible. <laughs> it's just we don't know how he was calculating these numbers. We don't know exactly what he was going for. But uh, it's just classic Thomas Jefferson of trying to be as accurate as possible in a way that actually shows that there's, this is an impossible reading. <laughs> this doesn't tell us much actually about the time. Um, and another kind of fun thing about these observations is mm -hmm. he'll write down the temperature, but then he'll be like, I heard the frogs today. Uh, and what that's telling you <laughs> is something about the season because he's writing down, oh, the frogs are singing. Uh... That means like it's summer. But 
you, as it's sort of charming as you're looking through the documents of like, ah, Whipperwell saying today. We were talking again off camera. It sounds like this is going to be a great project that will be extensible in the sense that other projects will be able to add similar data to it. And so then maybe we can have a, a very large database of uh, meteorological and climate data from that period that certainly be useful as we're thinking about how to uh, combat issues like climate change in our own time. Yes. So as it is right now, it's the temperature where Tom, Thomas Jefferson was for 30 years, which mm -hmm. is of limited use if you're trying to make big arguments like that. But yeah. if we can start to compile this data together, which is the way we've tried to build the site in a way that will hopefully in the future be able mm -hmm. to accommodate these things, uh, this could be a really interesting project. And I know that um, there's a lot of archives that have these collections that there's just not much that you can do with them of weather mm -hmm. records because they're not particularly interesting. And to sit in the archives for hours and hours and hours and sort through this weather data isn't really all that fun. But to be able to digitize them and actually add to meaning, I think it could be a really exciting thing. Yeah, it's gonna. I think it's gonna be fantastic. Well, as we're kind of coming to the end here, uh, uh, you know, I have a couple more questions. I mean, one of them is: um, Is there a, a set of women's letters or a particular woman who you'd love to see a documentary edition done for? That's a great question. I actually, when I first started working with the Martha Papers, I started trying to do research because I, like like so many other people, got very uh, interested in the musical Hamilton. <laughs> and I was trying to put together a the Schuyler family, Schuyler sister correspondence. And is something that you run into with women's papers is they're not saved to the same scale a lot mm -hmm. of times as men's documents. George Washington has just hundreds and thousands of his everything that George Washington wrote almost entirely has been saved. But with Martha, we've, I think we've got like 280 documents of her letters mm -hmm. total that ended up being saved. And part of that is who decides they're valuable enough to save who, like if you were saving the letters, uh, giving them to other family members, they just sort of get scattered. But so women's letters can be a little tough to put together in a, a large scale collection, the way a lot of these, you know, male founders letters have been. But that doesn't mean they're not out there. It just takes more work to dig into the archives and see what collections survive. So mm -hmm. that's something I'd really be interested to work with more archivists who are the people who are the most familiar with their own collections that might know there's this big pile of letters that's really cool uh, that they'd like to have a project for. And let me know. <laughs> I, I, that's exactly the type of thing I'm interested in. <laughs> well, and speaking of letting you know, how how can folks listen to your show? Where can they find it? And if one of our colleagues out there has an idea for a letter that uh, they think would be a good fit for your show, how should they get in touch with you? Absolutely. I've been working on getting a, just a personal website together for the podcast, mm -hmm. but it's not quite ready. But if you can follow us on Twitter at H-U-M-S-E-R-V-T. Uh, so feel free to message me on Twitter or contact mm -hmm. me on Twitter. Uh, we also have an email account. It's the same H-U-M-S-E-R-V-T at gmail.com. Uh, mm -hmm. If you have ideas for a letter or comments or anything like that, feel free to contact there. Uh, and I would really like to keep this podcast going. So I am would be very excited in any ideas that people have. Well, that sounds terrific. And hopefully some folks will submit some ideas. And I think I've got it on Apple Podcasts, but is there on other platforms as well? Yeah. Uh, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. You mm -hmm. can find us a lot of the main podcast places. All the major ones. Well, super. Well, Catherine, thank you so very much for taking the time and to tell us about your new show and to, and to share your, your interest in your work and documentary editing and, and women's letters. And we really appreciate it. And best of luck with the program. And hopefully uh, you'll get some great content from the listening crowd. And uh, I look forward to listening to more episodes. 
Uh, thank you so much. I was delighted when you invited me to be on. This is a great podcast. So thank well, you. Well, our pleasure. Thank you. Maybe we'll le we'll learn a thing or two from you. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. This week's letter is from Elizabeth Willing Powell to George Washington. I am very excited to introduce Samantha Snyder as my very first guest on the podcast. Hi, Samantha. Hi. <laughs> Samantha is the reference librarian at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon and a fellow enthusiast for 18th century women's letters. She's pursuing her master's degree at George Mason University and is probably the world's foremost expert on Elizabeth Willing Powell. Actually, she has a uh, chapter that's going to be coming out pretty soon in a book. Um, what was that chapter again? Uh, it's a chapter in an upcoming book on George Washington and the women in his world. Um, and it's called, at the moment, roughly titled, One of My Best Friends and Favorites, The Friendship of George Washington and Elizabeth Willing Powell. I actually met Samantha while I was doing some research at the Washington Library, and we just hit it off right away. She was one of the best archivists and librarians that I've had the pleasure to work with. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So before we get started, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you first discovered Elizabeth Willing Powell? Sure. Um, so it's kind of a random story. Um, so we have this box of documents at work. We tend to have what's called document viewings when we give tours of our library. Mm. And there is an Elizabeth Willing Powell letter to George Washington in that box of documents um, that actually was written on my mother's birthday, just a couple hundred years prior, but it's written on November 4th, 1792. And my mom's birthday is November 4th. And I won't say the year for her sake. <laughs> and, um, so I was, I, I at first was kind of intrigued just by the date. I, it made me look at the letter again. And then I started reading it and I was like, wow, this woman seems fascinating. And then it all just kind of spun very quickly from there into, into this now almost two year long project. Um, ah. So that, that's really how it all began. Um, I just think she's a fascinating woman. And as I did more research, on her, I realized how many letters we had back and forth between Elizabeth Powell, George Washington, and Martha Washington, and some other family members, too. Tell me a little bit about Elizabeth Willing Powell as a person. Sure. So Elizabeth Willing Powell, she um, was born in 1742 in Philadelphia. So she is about 10 years younger than Washington. Um, she was born into two very elite families. So she grew up pretty well connected from a young age. Um, she lived right in the city of Philadelphia um, for her whole life. She lived nearly on the same street. Um, but she was best known 
during her lifetime as a hostess of many salons at her house. So her house was on Third Street, and it was really the central location for a lot of gatherings with different politicians during the time. So George Washington, of course, was a a frequent attendant at these different events, and he took tea there a lot, and um, he had dinner there. Uh, but also people like John Adams were there, Marquis de Lafayette, uh, the Marquis de Chateau, all of these different men were were going through that house and other elite um, families. So so she was really known as a connector of 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 people and really facilitated these kind of amazing conversations that happened throughout that time. Yeah. So sort of like this was, and this was very early days for American Republic. So they weren't sure how similar the new American government was going to be to sort of the French court or the English court where there were a lot of these sort of salons and society events and things like that. Uh, So she's sort of the American version of that, would you say? Yes, I would say, I would say that definitely. Yeah. Yeah, on on my end, working with the George Washington Papers, um, I heard about Elizabeth Willing Powell and when people were making the argument that George Washington had a lot of close female friendships, which was a side of him that I hadn't really ever heard of before. So I was always interested in that, but I've only seen the few letters with Elizabeth between, with her and Martha. Um, Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) When you sent me this one, I thought it was very exciting. Yes, yes, I agree. (laughs) Uh, And is there anything that specifically about Elizabeth Willing Powell's letters that made you want to learn more about her? Um, Just the way that they are phrased and the way she spoke um, I know people spoke differently in the 18th and early 19th centuries, but she just has a really eloquent way of speaking and a funny way of speaking too. And the way she talks to people, men and women, just kind of intrigued me. And I've enjoyed reading through her correspondence and actually transcribing her correspondence um, because I really get a feel for who she is as a person. And I feel very lucky that the person I chose to study has so many letters that still survive because I know not everyone is that lucky. Um, All right. So let's dig into it for the letter this week. Can you tell me a little bit about the context of this particular letter? Sure. So the letter is written in March of 1797. So what's going on with George Washington at the time this letter was written is he is on his way back to Mount Vernon. Um, He had decided not to serve a third term as president um, in September of 1796. And John Adams was elected in December of 1796, and then had just been inaugurated on the 4th, um, which is a few days before this letter was written. Washington was on his way back to Mount Vernon and um, starts selling off a lot of his things that he didn't want to take back with him. Um, he he sells off his writing desk. He sells off some his his horses, and then we think he sold off his coach, but. That's a whole other story. <laughs> I, I, right. And that's interesting that he's selling these things off also. Like, come on, George. Like, I know. Just I give know. people some stuff. <laughs> I know. I know that he's making everybody buy it. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And then there's things that I know that he would want to, to have stay at Philadelphia and not go back to Mount Vernon, like Nellie Custis's dog. There's a funny letter where he, <laughs> he's like, I wouldn't mind if we forgot him. Snipe, the dog. I think I think his name was Snipe. <laughs> That that's oh doesn't he say that about Martha's birds too? Yes. Doesn't Martha have some yes. birds? Yes, he's <laughs> yes. like just keep them there. But sure enough, they come back anyway. Um, so so that's kind of the context of of what Washington is doing, and so he's 
at this point sold Elizabeth the desk and she has it at her house, um, which is still surviving actually the house that she's living at at this point. It's a historic house museum in Philadelphia. And I highly recommend going and seeing it. It's wonderful. And the organization that runs it, they're also wonderful. Um, so, so she gets this desk and, um, at this point in her life, her husband actually passed away during the yellow fever epidemic in 1793. Um, he died right at the end of September of 1793. So she's been a widow now for um, about all, just over three years. Um, and so she pretty quickly as a widow started taking on sole financial responsibility for her husband's estate. And then he also, he owned a lot of land in Philadelphia and a lot of homes in Philadelphia. So she's managing those properties um, and also still entertaining, still purchasing new things for her house, including this desk. So, so she is a widow, um, but she's not isolated. She, there's plenty of letters that still talk about going to her house and having tea and having drinks and that sort of thing. So that's really the context of her life at that point. All right. So without further ado, um, let's read this letter. Okay. All right. So, okay. This letter was written on March 11th, 1797. My very dear sir, like a true woman, as you will think in the moment of exaltation and on the first impulse, for you know we are never supposed to act systematically or from attentive consideration, I take up my pen to address you as you have given me a complete triumph on the subject of all others on which you have, I suppose, thought me most deficient and most opposite to yourself. And what is still more charming, your candor shall preside as judge. Nay, you shall pass sentence on yourself, and I will not appeal from your decision. Suppose I should prove incontestably that you have, without design, put into my possession the love letters of a lady addressed to you under the most solemn sanction, and a large packet, too. What will the goddess of prudence and circumspection say to her favorite son and votary for his dereliction of principles to which he has hitherto made such serious sacrifices? Was the taste of your sex predominant in your breast, and did the love of variety so preponderant that because you had never blundered as president? was you determined to try its delights as a private gentleman. But to keep you no longer in suspense, though I know that your nerves are not as irritable as a fine lady's, yet I will with the generosity of my sex relieve you by telling you that upon opening one of the drawers of your writing desk, I found a large bundle of letters from Mrs. Washington bound up and labeled with your usual accuracy. Mr. Lear was present. I immediately desired him to take charge of the package, which he declined, alleging that he thought it was safer in my hands, at least for some time. At first I urged it, but finding him inflexible, as I suppose from motives of delicacy, I sealed them up, and I trust it is unnecessary for me to add that they will be kept until I deliver them to him or to your order. As Mr. Lear has been connected both with you and Mrs. Washington, and as it is probable that some family circumstances may have been mingled into her communications to you, to save his feelings, I have sealed the package with three seals bearing the impression of my blessed friend's arms, such as that I myself use. Should Mrs. Washington appear to have any unpleasant sensations on this subject, you will, I am certain, remove them by reminding her that though curiosity is supposed to be a prominent feature of the female mind, it will ever be powerfully counteracted when opposed by native delicacy or sense of honor, and I trust a pious education. 
<laughs> I shall, my good sir, give to Mr. Lear $245, which I find was the first cost of the writing desk. In my estimation, its value is not in the least diminished by your use of it, nor from its having been the repository of those valuable documents that originated with you during your wise and peaceful administration for eight years. I am sensible many true and handsome compliments might be paid to you on this occasion, but as they have been resounded with elegance and sincerity through the whole continent and will be re-echoed by posterity, as you must be conscious, they are just, and as you are not a man of vanity, I will not in my blundering way attempt a theme that I feel myself totally inadequate to, as blundering would not have to me even the charm of variety to recommend it. That is such a good one. I know, <laughs> I know, especially because she is so eloquent. She talks like this a lot about, oh, my scrawl, oh, my rambling, blah, 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 blah. But, and so there's, there's this paragraph left and then the postscript. All right. And now let me return you thanks for your tributes of affection. Mr. Lear has sent me in your name a pair of lamps and brackets with the appendages. And as a postscript, I believe two of these still survive at Mount Vernon. I think. I think. Oh, cool. <laughs> anyway, from you, they are acceptable, though from no other being out of my own family would I receive a pecuniary favor, nor did I want any inanimate memento to bring you to my recollection. I most sincerely hope to hear that you are all well and safely arrived at Mount Vernon long before you will receive this scrawl. Be pleased to present my best wishes to Mrs. Washington and Miss Custis. Truly and affectionately, I have the honor to be, sir, your most obedient and obliged, Elizabeth Powell. And she dockets it as His Excellency General Washington, sent by the post Monday 20th instant. So the copy that I'm reading from is a, is a draft copy. Postscript, March 13th. Mr. Lear dined with me yesterday. I desired him not to mention the circumstance alluded to in the first paragraph of this letter. Therefore, Mrs. W. need not be informed of it unless you choose to tell her yourself. E.P. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is such it a good really letter. Is. I was just so excited when you sent me this letter. I know, because I know we talked about a couple of different ones, and I was sitting there, like, kind of brainstorming some other ideas, and then I thought, well, God, these are just too good. So, so obviously, she's using a lot of very flowery language, which is something that is very yes. common at the time, and I think um, she's actually doing it quite well. But if you were going to summarize, just for some a modern listener, what is going on in this letter? What has happened? So, to summarize it for a modern listener... She has bought a desk from him. And in the 18th century, Washington would often store his letters in desks. But the fact that it's something so private as letters from a wife to, to um, her husband, she's teasing him about it. And the whole thing that is so funny that I really like is the whole bit at the beginning about never blundering as president. I think that's so fascinating that she's like, you never made any mistakes when you were president and you are determined, <laughs> yes. were you determined to try its delights as a private gentleman? So basically she's saying, now you're like the rest of us. That's how I interpret that. Like, oh, you were so perfect <laughs> okay. until now you're not. <laughs> well, I also, cause she's sort of, she's, she doesn't come right out with the fact that they're his no, wife's letters no. right away. So is she sort of implying for just a second that he, she has love letters for him from someone and just trying to get him to get a little nervous. And then she halfway says, Oh, I have 
the love letters yeah, from that's, your life. That's what I think is that she's trying to tease him. She's trying to be like, hey, I found some love letters. And then and then she knows – I think she knew that Washington wouldn't have cheated on his wife. Although although there yeah. are historians who argue that he cheated on Martha Washington with Elizabeth Cole. But, uh, but – which, yeah. you know, sometimes <laughs> these letters, it's kind of like, hmm. Uh, but, 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 yeah, I think that's kind of – that's what – she's doing is is teasing him about something that she knew he would probably never do right and and like i'm also of the side that like 18th century correspondence just tends to be more flirty sounding to a modern audience but also like wouldn't it be crazy though if he was (laughs) cheating on martha washington with elizabeth powell for him to then sell her a desk that has his wife's love letters in it (laughs) that would add a little twist to that knife i think that would add a big old twist So, so how does he respond to this letter? Oh, and yes. So I will read you his first bit where he responds to her beginning paragraph. So, so this letter from George Washington to Elizabeth Powell is written on the 26th. So at this point, he is back at Mount Vernon. Um, and so he gets her letter as, as it says at the bottom of her letter, she sent it on the 20th and he gets it at Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. And so he responds back just as flirtily, I would say it's, it's pretty funny. It's very unlike Washington to be quite so, um, not so formal in his letters, I guess. I'll go ahead and read a little bit of, of his letter. My dear madam, a mail of last week brought me the honor of your favor, begun the 11th and ended the 13th of this instant. Had it not been for one circumstance, which by the by is a pretty material one, that I had no love letters to lose, the introductory with without the explanatory part of your letter would have caused a serious alarm and might have tried how far my nerves were able to sustain the shock of having betrayed the confidence of a lady. But although I had nothing to apprehend on that score, I am not less surprised at my having left those letters of Mrs. Washington in my writing desk, when, as I suppose I had emptied all the drawers, mistaken in this, however, I have to thank you for the delicacy with which they have been treated. But admitting that they had fallen into more inquisitive hands, the correspondence would, I am persuaded, have been found to be more fraught with expressions of friendship than of enamored love, and consequently, if the ideas of the possessor of them, with respect to the latter passion, should have been of the romantic order to have given them the warmth, which was not inherent, they might have been committed to the flames. (laughs) (laughs) So... So that's all he says on that. And then he goes into detail about his his trip back from Philadelphia, which in the amount of times I've now taken trips back and forth from Philly, I realize he's basically taking 95. He goes through Chester, (laughs) then he goes through um, Maryland. And it's just, I'm like, oh, I recognize all these towns. (laughs) Yeah, so really, that's it. At the end, there's kind of a nice little, I'll read this last little paragraph because this is something that, all of our curators and people that work at Mount Vernon find kind of interesting. He says, okay, we, so this is after they've arrived back. He says, we are like the beginners of a new establishment, having everything in a manner to do houses and everything else to repair rooms, to paint paper, whitewash, etc., etc. But although these things are troublesome and disagreeable as they will involve us in a good deal of litter and dirt, yet they will serve to give exercise to both the mind and body. 
My paper reminds me of the necessity of concluding, which I shall do with the best wishes of Mrs. W. and Miss Custis, added to my insurances of being, dear madam, your most obedient and affectionate servant, George Washington. So that's that's the send-off, which is kind of nice. Yeah, that's really um, but sweet. I th- yeah, yeah. And I think the part's kind of cool about they have embarked on a new journey yet again, because they'd been in, you know very society Philadelphia for several years and probably seen a lot of beautiful homes and they wanted right. to, to, to make theirs more contemporary. It's also, modern. it's funny that he starts it out being sort of a little bit racy with, you know, if mm-hmm. uh, there were any letters that were more romantic, <laughs> yeah, you like burn them. And then he person, ends very, yeah. you know, very George Washington. And yes, very formal. Imagining all these really very spicy Martha Washington <laughs> letters that she sent him. <laughs> During know, the revolution that he cast I into know. the flames. <laughs> <laughs> it is so interesting. And it's, I still, what's interesting about these, this correspondence is that it really doesn't make clear who the letters ended up with or how they got to where they are. She talks about dining with Tobias Lear, but she doesn't necessarily say she gave the letters to him. I think it's kind of implied, yeah. but it is kind of interesting to think are those still out there somewhere bound up with the seal of the, with the Powell family seal? For people who might not be aware, Martha Washington burned all of her correspondence with George. Uh, and I think there's only three letters that survive and one of them is a very small note. Um, so some, any letters between them would just be such an amazing find, be something be that we'd really be yeah. interested in. Yeah, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And also the Tobias Lear that they keep mentioning, um, if you're not familiar with him, he was a secretary of the Washingtons for quite a few years. And he married not one, but two of Martha's nieces, <laughs> both of them named Fanny. Yes. <laughs> Which has always been uh, just ridiculous to me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weirdly Tobias Lear heavy episode. Yeah. Um, all right. So, okay. Back to the letter. Um, one of the things that sort of struck me when I first looked at it is how much Elizabeth Willing Powell talks about being like a true woman uh, and her feminine nature and feminine curiosity and things like that. Um, so why do you think she used that kind of language in here? She, well, she, in a lot of her letters, is very um, talks about being a, a timid woman and this sort of stuff. And I've always been kind of intrigued by that. And I think it was partially a practice of the time. Like a lot of times women would do that, similar with the scrawl at the end and burn this letter, that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, but she is very focused on gentility and manners. Um, that's something mm-hmm. I have noticed. And she, she um, reads quite a bit and she reads a lot of different types of books. Yeah, so I think it kind of comes from that. Maybe it comes from her education and her her focus. Maybe because she was a hostess and hosted salons for so long, she she kind of grew up in the world of being this I don't know kind of eloquent figure, and you you needed to be on your best. Did she behavior. spend any time in France? Because it, so she has it seems like she has the sort of French salon style type. She uh, did not. She did not, which is actually very interesting. She never left. Um, well, the Philadelphia region, she went to Virginia, um, and she would go up to visit family in Germantown and then over to New Jersey. Um, but as far as I'm aware, she never left those couple of States. She never went abroad. Um, but she read like crazy and, and that 
kind of comes through how much she knows just based on reading and other people when they talk about her talk about her love of reading and talk about mm-hmm. how knowledgeable she is and um even the the Marquis de Chateloup uh he references that though she has not traveled she has read a great deal and it I mean it, you can definitely shows. tell from her writing style she has that sort of 18th century long sentences lots of emotion things like that definitely um, definitely compared to somebody like Martha who doesn't read as much um and she didn't have a very good education she sort of writes if it's a long sentence it's just a run-on sentence that has a lot of short points within it yeah Yeah. whereas this seems like um she's definitely going for a style here which is really interesting it is interesting and and it's it's a very consistent style throughout her life um even the earliest letters i've looked at are from when she's about 26 27 and she Mm -hmm. speaks very similarly to how she does when she's in her 70s. Like she just kind of has yeah. that way of speaking. And I've looked at some of her siblings' letters, um, and they have a similar way of speaking, but even they address how she is as a person and kind of her unique sense of self um, to be polite. <laughs> Sometimes now, I, I love polite. the little postscript at the end because she definitely is polite in giving George Washington an out where he doesn't have to admit to Martha that he gave away some of her love letters. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is. I think very interesting. <laughs> it is. It's kind of like woman protecting woman almost because they were they were friends. So it's like it's but it does make me wonder too. Like 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 I guess that was nice of Elizabeth to be like, "Oh, by the way, you can just like slip these back in. Don't don't worry about telling her." Like and I think part of that comes from um with her saying that she she sealed them up. So I think Martha right. would have recognized the, the Powell seal, because Elizabeth sealed her letters to them quite often, and Samuel Powell did when he was alive. So I do think that that's part of it, too, that that I think she's saying, like, you can take them out of that if you want, because then Martha won't know that someone else has seen these letters besides you. <laughs> so, or at least that's how I'm interpreting that. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And this adds to my ongoing um, evidence pile that Martha Washington could be a force of nature when she was angry. <laughs> exactly. But I agree. I agree. Because if she was the demure woman that sometimes she's portrayed as, I don't think either George or Elizabeth would would care about this bundle yes. of letters. Like, so, so clearly she is a force of nature in her own right. And I think that's why Elizabeth Powell was friends with her as well, because she had her own sense of, of being a powerful woman. All right. Any Any sort of... Thoughts. I guess the other thing is, and we talked about this a little bit, like Elizabeth Powell teasing George Washington like this and for him to respond with just sort of teasing back is just a really different side of George Washington than we usually see. And also um, there's a lot of people who say anybody who interacted with George Washington ever was one of his close friends. (laughs) You notice that in a lot of books, people are always trying to get like a connection to Washington. But Elizabeth Willing Powell, just from this exchange, you can tell this is somebody who was actually very close with George Washington and they actually had a really good book. Absolutely. I agree. I think, I think in, in looking at some other ways Washington interacted with different people and, and and interacted with other women, he, he clearly had a respect for women and he, um, he writes to um, Anna Stockton and Elizabeth Graham Ferguson and Catherine Macaulay Graham. And he, you know, he has kind of intellectual letters with them, but I've not seen anything like this with another woman (laughs) where he's, he's being so kind of open and kind of 
just silly in, yeah. in, in the way George Washington can be silly, silly. I guess. <laughs> this, this is peak Washington silly, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, the only comparable thing is is him and the Marquis de Chateauleau. I think they have kind of a, a similar weird sort of back and forth. Um, but I think that shows with Washington, I think it shows a level of respect, too, that mm. he feels like he can be a little less stoic than he normally is. So, but yes, they, and, and they kind of have, this is by far the most flirty their letters are, Mm -hmm. or like most kind of teasing, but they definitely have a rapport going. Like he, he writes her a little note in the 1780s. They are going to go see, and I think you probably recognize this letter, the, the, the little note about the school for scandal, where mm-hmm. he says he he's going on a fishing trip the next day, so he can't go to a play with the Powells, but he, and it's called the school for scandal. And he says something along the lines, I don't have it in front of me, but he says something along the lines of, um, I know I need a lesson in the school for scandal. <laughs> you could tell he probably thought that was so funny. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Samantha, for joining oh, me. Absolutely. This was a absolutely. This was so fun. <laughs> As always, I am your most obedient and humble servant. This is Catherine. I just wanted to cut in and thank you so much for listening to Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant. Uh, I've been absolutely thrilled and so thankful for all of the support we've received so far. This is a small podcast that I make pretty much on my own. So any, literally any help you are able to give to promote it goes a very long way. A quick thing that you can do to help the podcast is to go into iTunes and rate and review the podcast there. Uh, It's silly, but it's just sort of an algorithmic thing. It leads more people to the podcast. Also, if you want to spread the word, you can tweet at us. Uh, We're on Twitter at H-U-M-S-E-R-V-T, humservant. Of course, as always, the best way to promote a podcast is word of mouth, so feel free to tell all of your nerd friends and your history friends and your feminist friends, anybody, uh, about the podcast. Um, Once again, I just want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've just been overwhelmed by the kind words and support that we've gotten so far. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, Uh, so thank you so much for listening.